0: On the next episode of Louder Than a Riot, Bobby Shmurda's transition from the streets to superstardom and how viral fame led to infamy.
1: I don't ask people from the hood if they got criminal activity going on. I know in hip hop, the badder the better.
0: Listen now to Louder Than a Riot from NPR Music.
1: From NPR Music, you're connected to all songs considered. I'm Bob Boylan. On today's show, we explore the early works of Joni Mitchell. The singer and songwriter released her first album in 1968 but a new boxed set has just been released joni mitchell archives volume one the early years 1963 to 1967. it's 119 songs including 29 songs never released from joni i'm going to bring on npr music's ann powers to talk about this five cd set but let's start with one of the many live recordings in this box set this song is from a performance at the Canterbury House in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's one of our well-known tunes. It's called The Circle Game.
0: Yesterday, the child came out to wonder dragon fly inside a jar. Fearful when the sky was full of thunder and tearful at the falling of a star. And the seasons they go round and round and We're captive on the carousel of time We can't return, we can only look Behind from where we came And go round and round and round In the circle game. Then the child moved ten times round the seasons skated over ten clear frozen streams. Words like when you're older must appease him, and promises of someday make his dream. And the seasons, they go round and round, and the painted ponies go up and down. We're captive on the carousel of time. We can't return. We can only look behind from where we came, and go round and round and round in the circle. Sixteen springs and sixteen summers gone now. Cartwheels turn to car wheels through the town. And they tell him, take your time, it won't be long now. Till you drag your feet to slow the circles down So the years spin by and now the boy is twenty Though his dreams have lost some grandeur coming true There'll be new dreams Maybe better dreams and plenty Before the last revolving year is through Sing with me And the seasons, they go round and round And the painted ponies go up and down We're captive on the carousel of time We can't return, we can only look behind from where we came and go round and round and round in the circle game. We can't return, we can only look behind from where we came and go.
1: Round in the circle again. So that's Joni Mitchell from an uh, live at the Ann Arbor Canterbury House back. Almost 53 years ago to the day, October 67. Joining me to talk about this amazing collection is Ann Powers, NPR Music's Ann Powers. Wow. A hundred plus <laughs> tracks, a time warp. <laughs> a
2: indeed. treasure trove. A treasure
1: uh, trove indeed. <laughs> Tell me about this box set and where to begin.
2: This is such an exciting development for Joni devotees, of which there are so many. Um, Joni Mitchell has always been somewhat resistant to archiving, especially her early material, but now she is launching a new series that's going to be similar to what her peers Bob Dylan and Neil Young have have done for a long time. She's going to be sharing unreleased material in these beautifully produced box sets, and, and I've seen... Uh, this set in the flesh. And it's just gorgeous. There's so many amazing photos of Joni as a young girl and young woman, 29 original compositions that have never been released before with her singing them. I know it's, it's insane. You know how usually with these kinds of archival boxes, it's a lot of stuff that the people have heard, but it's better organized. But I think this is truly like, you know, you open the vault and Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's and that bad. was
1: a live cut. Uh, that's not true of a lot of these. And uh, why don't you take us to something nice and early?
2: Oh, yeah. Nice and early. As early as it gets. One of the reasons that Joni finally decided to put this box together was that uh, a recording surfaced of her very first time in any studio, I think. At 19, she entered a radio studio in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, where she uh, spent her teenage years, with a disc jockey named Barry Bowman. She recorded a bunch of folk songs, and this recording disappeared for decades. It was, you know, shrouded in, in the midst of a legend. And one day, Barry Bowman, the disc jockey's daughter, was going through some old boxes and found this tape uh, labeled Joni Anderson, Joni's maiden name. and And lo and behold, here was this recording of her they made it in the off hours and it's Joni playing her baritone ukulele which was what her mom bought her she wanted a guitar but uh, mom thought of a ukulele was more economical <laughs> 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 and singing these folk songs so uh even in these very early recordings i think you hear her inventiveness and of course her incredible voice
1: what should we hear from that uh, those early days from that early recording
2: well, let's hear a song that Joni probably learned on the folk circuit. It was also recorded by Judy Collins, who would later become one of Joni's early patrons, uh, I guess is what you'd say. She recorded, um, you know, some of Joni's songs very early on. It's called Anathema, and, and I think you and I both like this song, Bob, because it just shows that voice in all its glory, even in, in Joni's teen years.
1: Awesome.
0: Word was sent to anything
1: In the 1960, what, 63-ish range? Yes, yes. She's 19-ish. Yep. (laughs) She starts eventually to write songs of her own and starts traveling, right? She heads to Detroit.
2: Joni thought she would be a painter before she ever considered a career in music. And she, even to this day, thinks of herself as a painter first. So she went to art college, but... She also started playing in coffee houses, and, and by 1965, she'd, uh, she'd moved around a little bit in Canada, and, and then she'd ended up in Detroit. A lot happened that year. She had a baby uh, whom she entrusted for adoption. Uh, she also married another musician named Chuck Mitchell, and she was performing with him, and she was writing songs, and even then, she was writing songs that later became classics, you know, and I think she'd gone through a lot even by that time and you sense that thing that's so essential to Joni which is that blend of I don't want to say girlish or childlike cuz that's not quite right, but that poeticism and wonder combined with a kind of almost world-weariness and and that's in some of the the early compositions that are on this box set including her very earliest compositions one of which is a is a song that we all still love, it's called Urge for Going and one of the great discoveries of this box set is a recording she made for her mom for her mom's birthday in 1965 and uh, on that little demo is Urge for Going and here she is you know, she's trying to figure out her life, she's in this marriage that is not working out she you know, is in the midst of the process that uh, will make her a birth mother who has entrusted her child for adoption. This is intense stuff. And I think all of those experiences are are in these songs. But also that great sense of observation that's Joni's gift. She has said, that this is the first well-written song she ever (laughs) she ever had you know uh and i think part of that is that it isn't just a raw record of her experience but it's also an observation of her life and of those around her in the canadian prairies who sometimes felt trapped even within the beautiful surroundings where they grew up
1: let's listen to uh urge for going
3: i've written a couple of new songs since you were out here and i think you'll like this one especially mom I awoke today and found perched on the town it hovered
0: Got the urge for going And I had to let him go Yes, he got the urge for going When the meadow grass was turning brown And summertime was falling down And winter closin' in
1: Just to give people an idea of the world of the folk singer quote-unquote which a term I think she hated but uh, <laughs> it, it is uh, a, a world in which singers and songwriters sang each other's tunes I mean yeah right and this beautiful song that makes me want to cry right now <laughs> I know uh, was not originally made famous by her
2: no, actually, um, Tom Rush was the first to record Urge for Going. And then George Hamilton IV, a country singer, recorded it and had some success with it, too. That folk singing community was so important to Joni. And though, yes, she would absolutely move beyond the frame of the folk singer fairly quickly, it was essential to who she was at that time. And I think one of the interesting things about listening to this music is you really can imagine and conjure the community of which she is a part. She would hate me for saying this, but I think you can hear the influence of women like Judy Collins and Joan Baez in her voice. And also she talks about you know, her number one influence at the time, Bob Dylan, she was also to soon meet Leonard Cohen, become close with him. He was Buffy St Marie. Yeah, Buffy St. Marie. Actually, I'm so glad you mentioned Buffy. She, Joni, when she first left, you know her home region, it was to travel to the Mariposa Folk Festival to see Buffy St. Marie. Buffy was essential to her development. So yeah, all of these people factor in, and they were trading songs, and, and Joni became a popular writer for others to interpret which I think is almost it's inevitable because the songs were great but it's also extraordinary because when you have that instrument that vocal instrument that Joni had you know to for others to be singing the songs even as great as Tom Rush is and as Judy Collins is we want to hear Joni do them that's one of the great things about this set
1: You talk about Dylan. There's some some recordings where she talks about songwriting and so forth, and uh, we'd love to play. um, What's the story, Mister Blue? You want to? She does an intro, but you want to just?
2: I'm so glad we're sharing this song because, as much as these early recordings you know, make us think about Joni as a folky, she was always a rock and roller in her heart and in her soul. In the interview that's within the linerness of this set that she did with her old friend Cameron Crowe, she says her favorite songwriters, Chuck Berry... And <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> I did not know that.
2: Yeah, she loved Shook Berry. She was hugely influenced by 50s rock and roll and doo-wop and all that stuff. And you can hear that, I think, in this song, What's the Story, Mr. Blue. Uh, she also talks about Dylan's influence, specifically Dylan's playfulness as a songwriter, and how he would just throw together all the lines he had building up from all the songs he'd never completed. And build a new song from it. She tells a story in the introduction. She also mentions uh, someone named David Blue and, sa- and you know says, this is not about him. I have to wonder. But David Blue was a, a really cute songwriter <laughs> and a very good songwriter, singer-songwriter. And she was uh, close to him at this time. So that's who the David Blue is, who is not the Mr. Blue of this song, supposedly. So
1: she says, yes. <laughs> All right, let's listen to that, Her intro, listen to a bit of Mr. Blue.
2: The other
3: day I was reading in a magazine that uh, Bob Dylan had written one of his songs by taking leftover lines from dozens of songs he'd never finished. And I decided, well, by golly, I've got about 15 unfinished songs at home. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the lines I like out of each one of them and I'm going to kind of cram them all together into a mulligan stew kind of song. But the thing was that all of the songs were on very, very different topics and... So, to put them into one song, I had to develop them around a very basic plot and a rock and roll beat. Now the plot goes like this. You see, there was a fellow named Mr. Blue who is no relation to David Blue at all. He's Mr. Blue because he's kind of sad. And he had a girlfriend who he treated very badly and so she left him and it serves him right. That's the plot. What's the story, Mr. Blue?
0: What's the story, Mr. Blue? Did you pull the rug from under you? Did she you chop your dreams up two by two and kick them out the door? I could sympathize you, son, but pity words stick to my tongue. Sorry words have all been sung so many And she do not want an hour's fall of sand for a lifetime full of dust. Oh, Mr. Blue, you knew your chances long ago. Oh, Mr. Blue, you're through Quit acting like
3: you didn't know. This is my second phase.
1: There's a little bit of Chelsea Morning in that maybe, yeah?
2: Yes, totally. Good good call. I think that's one of the fun things about listening to these tracks is you can hear elements that show up in her other songs. I even think in that melody you can almost hear a little bit of what becomes both sides now, you know, just in that little, the way it kind of drops down. Throughout this whole set you hear so much process and I mean, Joni Mitchell, she is just one of the most sophisticated songwriters, even in these early years. So to be able to hear how she's building those things, and and no one ever understands her guitar tunings, but you can kind of hear her exploring those here, and every element that becomes what we love is on the set.
1: We'll take a quick break. Be right back. I'm with Ann Powers having a conversation about the new box set from Joni Mitchell's Archives, Volume 1, The Early Years, 1963-1967, to and you're listening to All Songs Considered from NPR Music. From NPR Music, you're connected to All Songs Considered. I'm Bob Boylan, and I'm talking with NPR Music's Ann Powers about this 119-song collection of early Joni Mitchell music that's just come out. And one thing we've both made note of in these early years are how painterly these lyrics are. And Powers picks up on that point.
2: And the persona that she was creating as well, which, you know, was this sort of flower child, but but then always with an edge, you know, and always with that observational quality as well. And I know we will get box sets for the later periods, you know, the jazzy period and the blue period and all of those, you know, much beloved moments in her career. She would look at this early stuff and say, oh, you know, I was just silly back then. And, hey, let's be honest, some of the writing in these early songs is a bit uh, f- high-flying, <laughs> flowery. <laughs> but I think that's the exploration she needed to do to become, you well, know, the it wasn't writer she Well, was
1: just her. I mean, that was a generation of songwriters were yes. exploring new ways to be expressive and mixing, you know, the poetry that they started reading and gathering around and t- talking about. Yes. I, I, it is the time. This... Yes. This, this is a time machine for me. <laughs> what should we play in that in that writing that you call flowery that a song we've not heard before? What would what would we play here?
2: Well, I'm really intrigued by this little recording she made for the mysterious Michael who is the subject of her song Michael from Mountains, one of her beloved early songs. And on that recording she has a couple songs about love that are so intensely romantic, and they're all about, like, am I one with you or am I myself, you know? And I, I'm different than what you think I am. It's just <laughs> such a, uh, is, an er expression of young womanhood. One of them is called Gemini Twin. And just the idea of Joni Mitchell writing a song called Gemini Twin, I love it. That is the 60s in a nutshell for me, so... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Do we know anything and about uh where that was recorded obviously some of the the recordings really vary in quality most being pretty good that one very hissy but to not hear it because it was hissy would be a mistake, right?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And a lot of what's on this set is uh, recordings Joni herself made in her own home, wherever she was living. There's a demo she made for Jack Holtzman, the record executive early on. There's stuff she made like that she made for her friend, you know, her, her lover. Then there's wonderful recordings of live concerts but you hear the audience. You you just have to be willing to walk into this collection of songs as if you were, as you said, Bob, walking into a time machine and taking the Ambiance of the other world you've entered. You know, I'm a Joni nerd. You know, a complete Joni <laughs> obsessive. So, you know, I just love to listen to that recording and think of her in her little flat in New York, looking out the windowsill at whatever. You know, the the taxis driving down the road and making a recording, sitting on her bed. You know.
1: So as an as an Uber fan, and the fact that something like this is going to be for uber fans what is it that you love that fans are going to love that that you heard on this
2: well bob one of the great things about becoming an intense joni mitchell fan is it connects you with a community over space and time and there are songs on this record that have been treasured uh hoped for by fans for many years some of which fans have actually recorded because Joni's own recordings weren't available. So a few of these songs I've heard in versions by other singers. An example of that is Kara's Castle. I think there might be like a live version floating around of Kara's Castle as well. But I first heard this song on YouTube uh, covered by other people who had found uh, sheet music for it somehow. No kidding. Yeah, and and, and just like okay, this <laughs> Joni didn't leave us with this one yet, so we're gonna do it. So now we're back to the source, and and that's really really great.
1: YouTubers get it and, and write it all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty good, you know. I mean, I mean, Joni fans are very, very devoted. But one thing about that song I think is interesting is, is that, you know, she's painting this picture, this very poetical picture of uh, maybe life in a rough part of town, you know. And that's a side of Joni we don't talk about too much. We talk about her as a genius of the personal and the interpersonal, but she also was a social observer. And I think Karis Castle is a song you could put next to one like um, For Free, her later song about seeing a street musician and questioning you know, her own involvement in the music industry and the value of art. So you see a little bit of her, her greater consciousness in, in that song.
1: Joni Mitchell turns 77 uh, this week, she's had some health issues. But she is speaking, quote unquote, in this interview that you can read with Cameron Crowe on the liner notes. And do we know if she's active in putting together some of these, uh, the next set of archives that'll come out?
2: You mentioned her uh, health setback, and she had an aneurysm several years ago, and, and she has been in recovery. It's actually quite touching. She said, A few times that this is the third time she's had to learn to walk because she had polio as a young girl and she lost the ability to walk again when she had this aneurysm. So, you know, just pause and shout out to the resilience of Joni Mitchell, incredible resilience. She is getting better. But before she became ill, she was really doing a lot to sort of shore up and and, uh, refine her legacy. She uh, recorded some of her songs in orchestral settings. She participated in various tributes where other people interpreted her songs. Uh, She published a, a beautiful book of lyrics and artwork that she had created over the years. So I see this as part of a continuum, and I just can't wait for the next volume, because uh, wait until we hear the outtakes from Hijira or <laughs> what she was up to with, you know, Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. There's so much more. But this set we have here is a great gift and it sets us on the road in a beautiful way.
1: So take us out on something. What would be good?
2: Well... I don't know, Bob, what do you think? Should we go for the most beloved and obvious Joni song or the like one of the second most? <laughs> what do you think?
1: <laughs> well, uh, growing up in that time period, I think some pulling something from Blue would be fine. Yes. <laughs> and something that maybe gives us a little insight to her. Um, we talked a little about the fact that she had a child and she gave... That child up for adoption, and I know none of us knew that story in 1971 when we heard uh, the song "Little Green." Yes. Now that we do know that story, that has a whole different feel and meaning.
2: It's an absolutely central part of Joni's story, and it's one that she was uh, she was talking about in her music from the beginning of her career. And this song, Little Green, you know, it's sort of like a purloined letter when you know that it's about the experience of having a child and, and trusting that child for adoption and the grief that comes from that, but also the hope. Uh, well, it, you know, you can never... Uh, hear the song in any other way but you're absolutely right I mean I've looked at the reviews I've looked at accounts and really nobody in the media got it (laughs) it's kind of amazing but this is definitely a song that I'm an adoptive mom myself I have cried to this song so many times including in front of Joni Mitchell once one one of my my most embarrassing stories of my life but I was presenting at a conference, and she was there. It was a conference in her honor, and I was presenting on the album Blue, and I had recently uh, become an adoptive mom to my daughter, and Joni was there at the time. She had recently reunited with her daughter, and they were in the front row, and I started crying when I got to the part in my paper about this song, and uh, I heard this little voice, Bob, from the front row, you can do it. You can do it. Oh my God. It was Joni. <laughs> oh my God. I know. I know. Oh I know. And life. I, I sometimes you know, at the time I was mortified, but now I realize that was a gift. And uh that is and now sometimes I just try to try to hear that voice again on my in my dark moments. You can do it. That's what Joni says to all of us.
1: Oh, I love that. Thank you. Thank you, Ann Powers.
2: <laughs> well thank you for uh spending this time with uh Greatest songwriter of all time, Joni Mitchell. <laughs> That's beautiful. Sorry, Bob, Dylan. That is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I didn't know what he meant. I've been trying. I've been reading Jeff Tweedy's book, trying to write a song, write one song. Didn't think he meant me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, you definitely rival Joni, but that Dylan guy, I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's go out on a "Little Green" from the box set of Joni Mitchell: the earlier years, nineteen sixty-three to nineteen sixty-seven. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music, along with Ann Powers. Thanks, everybody.
2: Thank you so much.
1: It's All Songs Considered. Born
2: with the moon in cancer
0: Choose her a name she will answer to Carla green and the winters cannot fade her Call the green for the children who have made her little green be a gypsy dancer. He went to California, hearing that everything's warmer there. So you write him a letter And her eyes are blue He sends you a poem And she's lost to you Little green Be a nonconformer Just a little green Like the color when the spring is born There'll be crocuses To bring to school tomorrow Just a little green Like the nights when northern lights perform There'll be icicles and birthday clothes And sometimes there'll be sorrow Child The child pretending Weary of lies You are sending home So you sign all the papers In the family name You're sad and you're sorry But you're not ashamed Little Green, Have a happy ending Just a little green Like the color when the spring is born There'll be crocuses To bring to school tomorrow Just a little green Like the nights when northern lights perform There'll be icicles and birthday clothes and sometimes there'll be sorrow. Born with the moon in cancer. Choose her a name she will answer to. Call green and the winters cannot fade her. Call it green for the children who have made her little green. Be a gypsy dancer, Kelly Green. Be a gypsy dancer.